Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. That great hymn speaks of our rest from the spiritual warfare that we win as we go to be with the Lord uh, while the saints here on earth continue to battle in that warfare. So we continue confessing our sins day by day, week by week. Uh, We turn today to the seventh commandment. Exodus 20 says, you shall not commit adultery. And Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus expands on that. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Thus far the reading of God's word. The seventh commandment here calls us as singles uh, to honor the marriages of others and our own potential future marriage. It calls those married uh, to love and to stay faithful to our spouses As with every sin, this starts in the soul, in the mind, in the thoughts, before it becomes an action. We're already sinning with the wrong kind of look. This is the kind of tendency we need to nip in the bud with a stern and vicious veracity, if needed. That's the point of Jesus' words about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin. So we strive for purity of thought. So let's confess our sins before Almighty God. We have the Psalm 51 before us again, which uh, David uh, prayed after his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, So let's kneel if you're able and we'll pray. Father, we have read your word. We pray now that your uh, Holy Spirit would uh, enlighten us, illumine this text, uh, shine the light uh, upon our hearts and lives. Uh, Bring us together, Lord, as you have uh, expressed once again your forgiveness of us. You now seek Uh, to uh, set us apart, to consecrate us, to dedicate us for your service. And it's through this word that you do this. So let us be attentive uh, with this as the goal, that we would glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm wondering this morning if you ever had it where the presented problem wasn't the real problem. You know what I mean? A uh, small example. Dad comes home from work, and he gets upset about the smallest things all night long. Can't find the remote. His chair's taken, whatever it is, and he's just upset. And you realize after a while, something else is going on with Dad today. It's not really about the remote. He, he's upset about something else, maybe something at work, whatever it is. The presenting problem, not finding the remote, isn't the real problem. There's something else going on. 
right? In our text today, that's going on. The presenting problem, the woman caught in adultery, is not the real problem. And we'll see that as we go through. That We have the setting, and then the trap, and then Christ's response, and their conviction and his compassion. That's the basic outline, going verse by verse, as we'll do now. But the main point, again, Jesus does not charge or condemn his people. He gives us compassion, and he defends us from the threats of others. Uh, Threats. Defends us from the accusations of others as well. So the setting first. And here we need to talk a little bit about some of the footnotes you might have in your Bibles. So uh, many uh, versions, in fact, about all of them, uh, mark this off as we're not sure if this is actually part of the Bible. Uh, Some uh, translations do this more than others. If you have an English Standard Version, it'll say that something like the best manuscripts uh, don't have this in uh, the original. If you have a New King James, it'll say something like, the NU text omits this. So what's that all about? I don't have time to go into all the detail of that this morning. But uh, there is a particular stream, a family of texts, uh, of the Greek texts of the Bible that we have that don't have this. And modern scholars today prefer that particular stream. Uh, and so you'll find that uh, articulated that way, especially in the English Standard Version uh, or others. Uh, I disagree with modern scholarship on that. I do not favor that one particular family of texts. It's, it's one to look at, but there are many others as well. And so uh, if you want my opinion, the New King James footnotes are the best to go by because they give you both options or, or all the options. So uh, most of the texts that we have today do have this passage in included. The story was known by 100 A.D., we're quite sure, based on who's writing and talking about it by then. I think that it was probably taken out early on because it appears to condone sin, right? If a surface reading of this, Jesus apparently doesn't care about adultery and he just lets it go. And he doesn't want anybody to charge anybody with sexual sin. Uh, That's a misreading of the text, but many of the early church fathers, uh, I think, uh, were afraid of this and so took it out. That's that's Augustine's argument, he he says, as he argues for it. If you you take it out and you go from verse 52 uh, to verse 12 of chapter 8, it's kind of a weird transition, too, I think. So there are there are several reasons uh, to keep it in. The, the early church fathers never reference it again. That's one argument the scholars use against it. But I've read those church fathers a fair bit in the past few years, and I can tell you some of their views on women and sexuality were pretty messed up. Uh, they were not the infallible guides on this topic, and most of them, I think, would assume that Jesus did the wrong thing to let the woman go. So I think they took it out for that reason. Uh, well, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to assume this text is original, that it's the word of God for us today, after, after all said and done. That's why we're preaching on it, uh, just as we do any other text. So the story, then, the setting. Uh, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Uh, remember, he's in the, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and... Uh, if you know some of the geography of Jerusalem, the, at the feasts, the, the whole city of Jerusalem was just packed. You couldn't find a hotel room anywhere. And so many people would go out of town to the Mount of Olives and sleep among the trees in the, in the olive trees, in the olive groves during the feast. Jesus does that. That's why he's in the Garden of Gethsemane 
at the Passover feast when he's arrested. Same kind of setting. So he's staying at night on the Mount of Olives, goes back into town, into the temple to teach in the morning. The Pharisees have this trap. They bring uh, the woman to him and say, what should be done with her? She's committed adultery. We know it. It's provable. Uh, Should we uphold the law or not? They want to trap Jesus here. Verse 6 is clear about their intention there, that that's what they're trying to do. They're not sincerely wondering if what they should do with this woman. Uh, they have a pretty good idea, but they want to trap Jesus. They're putting him on the horns of a dilemma, as logicians would say, right? If Jesus says, yes, go ahead and condemn her, stone her, then they can accuse Jesus to Rome because Rome did not allow the Jews to execute people without their uh, consent. If Jesus lets her go, then they can accuse him of not holding to the law. They can accuse Jesus either way, whatever he says. They think they've got him trapped. Uh, So I I would encourage you to read this story like when they ask Jesus if they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. It's the same kind of trap. This isn't so much about condemning or condoning sexual sin as it is a sneaky trap to get Jesus in trouble one way or the other. That's, that's the main point here. So instead of using a coin to talk about taxes, they now use a woman to talk about adultery. And it's the same play they're running against Jesus. Uh, this, by the way, is, uh, is, we have to watch out for this, they're using the law for their own twisted purposes. And this is the siren song of legalism in, in whatever case it is found. We use God's holy law to advance ourselves. Now, we don't tend today to haul others up for stoning, but we can make ourselves feel good about our obedience by focusing on the parts of the law that we do well or making up add-ins to conveniently fit with what we do and see, see how we're obeying the law see, and, and, and uh, trying to paint others into a corner and say, look, you're not obeying the law. You're not doing this and this and this, so how can you say you're obeying God and accusing in those kinds of ways? have to be careful that we don't wind up acting like the Pharisees here. Well, what's Jesus' response? In verse 6, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. All kinds of speculation about this. What is he doing? What did he write? Uh, And uh, with so much uh, negative about the Pharisees, uh, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of it very unflattering to them. I'd encourage you to turn with me to Jeremiah 17, which we read uh, partly. And uh, one important thing to keep in mind is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Wherever there's something that's not clear, uh, often there will be uh, some clearer verse that will shed light on something where you don't know what's going on. I think that's a, a case, the case here. So in Jeremiah 17, and the, the key verse is verse 13, and I admit this is a very small, quick, short little hint. Right? There's hardly anything here. It's not like it's a quote. It's a reference. Right? Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. That's all we've got to go on. That's the, that's the strongest connection anywhere in the Bible that, that people have found to what Jesus is doing. But I believe he's intentionally fulfilling uh, Jeremiah 17, 13. He's pointing to that verse by actually stooping down and writing in the earth. I think he's writing their names. He's writing the names of these accusers in the earth, acting out Jeremiah 17, 13. 
And what he's saying is, you've departed from me. This name, this name, this name, all the, all the Pharisees standing around. They've departed from him. Now look at the context of that chapter. I, that's, I know that's kind of a, a shaky thing to go on, right? It's just one half a line of a verse. Are you really going to say that? I think so. If you look at the context, it all becomes clearer. Uh, why? Uh, the rest of verse 13, Jeremiah 17. Because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jesus just claimed last week in chapter 7 of John to, that he would have fountains of living waters coming out of anyone who believes in him. Right? So there's a, a double reference there. That's also, by the way, another oblique uh, claim of the divinity of the Spirit. Right? He's, Jesus says this of the Spirit. The Spirit is the, the fountain of living waters. And what's being said here in John, Jeremiah 17, those who depart from me have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. God is the fountain of living waters. In John 7, Jesus says, the Spirit is the fountain of living waters. Ergo, the Spirit is God. When you put this all together, it makes a rich tapestry. So, they've departed from me, so I write their names in the earth. They've forsaken the fountain of living waters. And if you look at the beginning of Jeremiah 17, you see the same thing. This is all conviction of Israel's sin and forsaking the Lord, which they're doing as they're rejecting Jesus. So that's my brief for Jeremiah 17. This is what Jesus, I think, is doing. He's writing their names in the earth to say, to remind them of this verse and that they are, being, they are forsaking God. There's a big contrast there, too, by the way, with Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, you should rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right? So John the Evangelist here is, again, saying, if you come to Jesus, if you have faith in his name, John chapter 3, then your name is written in heaven. If you forsake him, your name will be written in the dirt. Heaven or, or, or dirt, which, which one's it going to be? Where do you want your name written by God? So Jesus stoops in verse 8, and he writes again. Uh, they continue to accuse. Uh, Jesus is very deliberate here, in, in, and I think that's what he's doing, re referencing Jeremiah 17. They keep asking him, they keep asking him, verse 7. And he uh, says uh, what he says and writes again. Well, I think that's, again, the safest interpretation, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. He says, uh, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And writes again, and those, uh, they're convicted by their conscience, verse 9, and they go out one by one, beginning with the oldest. Fascinating scene to imagine this happening. We're not sure what the age information is for exactly. Uh, I think it's a warning that the younger we are, the more zealous for ideals we are, the more willing we are to run over people with them. We're, we're more willing to to convict, to criticize, to accuse, to condemn uh, in more youthful zeal for the opinions and the ideas that we have. Uh, with age, usually comes the wisdom uh, to treat others more gently. Uh, in our youth, we tend to dismiss and to condemn others. Uh, when age and wisdom come to us, we're convicted first of, and most of our own sins rather than pointing the finger at others or trying to take down other people. So perhaps that's what's going on here, that the older uh, get it quicker than the younger do. They go out one by one. Uh, now, back to verse 7 a moment, when Jesus says, He who is without sin among you, why does this convict them? Well, it exposes their real motivation, really. 
right? When Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell everything that he has, it exposes his motivation. He's really driven by his riches uh, more than by his insincere question, how do I inherit an eternal life? He, he's, he's not going to give up his riches, whatever else comes. Same here with the rulers. They're not going to give up their attack on Jesus, uh, whatever else comes. And Jesus exposes that. So uh, this verse is often misused uh, to assert that we should never judge, never call sin, sin. Unless you're perfect, right? Unless you have no sin yourself, then you can't ever call out another sin. It appears on the surface that's what Jesus is saying. But no, the point is, don't misuse God's law for your own selfish, sinful purposes. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Their intent is malicious. They are exploiting and shaming this woman, all just to try to take Jesus down. It's quite a vicious action. So Jesus is simply exposing that intent on their part. He's not saying we have to be perfect before we can call anything a sin. So... Jesus uh, speaks this, they, he writes in the dirt again, verse 8, they all leave one by one, uh, and it's fascinating, at the end of verse 9, they've all left, Jesus is left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Uh, one of my kids noticed that. Why would it say in the midst if it's just Jesus and the woman? And that's just to highlight the public shameful nature of this. This woman has probably not looked up for several minutes and they've all left, and she doesn't even know it yet. To her, they're still there. She's still um, there, crumpled on the ground probably, in, in the midst of this shame, this embarrassment. But it's, it's not in the midst, it's just her and Jesus. And so Jesus points that out to her. Where'd they go? Has no one accused you? No one condemned you? No one, Lord, verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here we see the compassion of Jesus. Right in the same incident where Jesus is being attacked, where he's being accused and persecuted, Jesus works to defend this woman. He protects the woman from her accusers. We see here Jesus' divine right to forgive once again. How could Jesus not condemn her? We might want to ask. We're those who regard and uphold God's law. If we find someone who is guilty of adultery, should we not uh, turn to the, the law of God and carry out what it says? How could Jesus not condemn her when she sinned? Well, for the same reason that he doesn't condemn you for yours. He went to the cross. He's looking ahead to the cross, and he takes all the punishment for all our guilt on himself. In Romans, God speaks of uh, overlooking the sins of many. Uh, until the time of the cross comes. And then God, uh, all that overlooking that God does, where he doesn't uh, you know, take, take a, a wicked sinner in the time of Noah, who doesn't die uh, right at the moment of their birth, who God preserves alive, that's, that's grace of a sort, right? That's, that's um, overlooking sin. How could God do that? Because of the cross to come. The same thing is happening here. Jesus, uh, because of his coming atonement at the cross, uh, says to this woman, I do not condemn you. Sin no more. 
that now he, uh, some, I think, teachers of, of the Bible get this uh, mistaken. So let's spend a bit of time on this. Sin no more, it says. This is a, a command, an imperative, right? From this point on, go and don't do this anymore. So Jesus here is, is not condoning the act of adultery. He's saying that was sin and don't do it anymore. Uh, but he's not saying your sin exists no more. Some teachers try to twist this and say, yeah, when Jesus says sin no more, he's actually saying sin, you don't exist anymore in this woman's life. Well, it, it, as she comes to the Lord in faith and repents, she'll be forgiven, yes. But we're not actually given a real, a real clear statement that that happens in this text. Uh, John, I think on purpose, leaves it unknown. What does this woman do? We don't know. And that's part of John being the evangelist again. He'll, he does this with the older brother in the prodigal son parable as well. He, he leaves him standing there outside. We don't know what he does. Does the older son go into the party? Or does he reject the father's direction? Does this woman accept this grace from Jesus? Does that drive her to him in faith? Or does she abuse that patience of the Lord and it drives her to further judgment later. We don't know. And the point is to highlight the, the, the choice, uh, the decision that we need to make to come to faith in Christ or not. Uh, so, no, this is a command, an exhortation, an encouragement to this woman. Don't do this again. Uh, and, and it's a, a call for us as well. We know that uh, death puts an end to our sinning. The catechism tells us, right? Uh, but that doesn't make us careless. Uh, we, we take this, uh, this exhortation from Jesus uh, deadly seriously. Jesus uh, tells us to stop sinning. Scripture uh, has many calls to stop sinning. We won't win this fight completely and before death, but that's beside the point. We're diligent to avoid sin. Uh, so, a uh, couple of points of application as we, uh, as we uh, close then. Uh, first, uh, I haven't said much about adultery or sexual sin. That really isn't the main thrust of this passage. But the preacher on this passage, I think, has every warrant to address this for a moment. Uh, as I said earlier in the service, we do live in a sex-saturated society. Temptation is everywhere the eyes might turn. Pornography is highly addictive and progressive. It leaves you unsatisfied and loaded with guilt. It's like a lollipop that's sweet on the outside, but it, it's, it, in the center it's an acid that consumes you before you realize what happens almost. And, and people are walking around loaded with guilt uh, for sin in this area, I am convinced. It can feel awkward, but I encourage you to find ways to address this with your family, with your spouse. Get accountability if there is a problem. Uh, so this is a real uh, issue uh, in our uh, world today. Uh, they call it the, um, uh, the hidden dragon uh, sometimes it's called in the church today. It's so pervasive and so destructive. Uh, second, uh, at the same time, sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. And that's a clear teaching of this text. Uh, no sin is too strong a stain for Jesus to wash clean. Jesus can wash you clean, and he will. Uh, no condemnation, we read in Romans chapter 8. It's not like nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, except for if you sin in this area. That's often how uh, 
that society reacts, but it's not the case. It's not the unforgivable sin. I have noticed, though, in, in uh, the counseling that I've done in this area, this can be a litmus test for if you accept the grace of God in your life. Uh, when, you, when you sin in some way, uh, sexually, uh, in this area, it, it can be very difficult to accept the grace of God in our lives. We want to offer God a perfect record of righteousness. But we're way past that point. We can't do that anymore. Uh, but often, we refuse to accept it. No, I need to make up for this. This, this was so awful that I need to make up for this. And you can't. You, the whole point of the gospel is you can't make up for it. God must forgive you. Uh, you receive grace. Jesus does not condemn you, so go and sin no more. And mentally we hear that, but our souls don't accept it. And, and we go back and we try to stand on our own righteousness the next week. And so we find ourselves failing again, or accusing others again, <clears throat> or setting up our own legalistic code again, so we can meet it ourselves without the grace of Christ that we desperately need. No, don't make that a substitute for the grace of Christ. We need to simply receive forgiveness. Sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. No sin is. And, and it, whatever area of sin it is, whatever is the besetting area of sin for you, that's usually the one where you're most strongly tempted to say, no, I can do this myself this week. And that's the, the mistake there is myself. You, you can't do this yourself, and you've got to accept the grace of Christ first. Well, uh, again, no sin, the, it, sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin there. That's second. Third, uh, don't be the accuser. You have these Pharisees and Sadducees who are trying to take down Jesus, uh, and they're being the accuser. And it's not, uh, we, we can set up the Pharisees as a real you know, kind of cartoon caricature, right? These guys are this weird anomaly of people that hated Jesus. Well, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody be like them at all? Well, actually, everyone, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceptively wicked, right? We're all uh, either like the woman or we're like the Pharisees, sometimes both at different times. So don't be the accuser. It's easy to fall into this. I think especially when you're in a role of leadership, it's easy to fall into this, right? If you're a parent, it can be easy to, be, to fall into a pattern of accusing. Uh, mothers can nag and scold more than they patiently train and gently love. It's very easy to fall into because you're, because you're training so much. So every five minutes, it's got to happen again. And that, that we quickly lose patience, and it turns to scolding, to nagging, to accusing instead. Children, too. I've noticed uh, siblings sometimes love to accuse each other. And we've got to watch out for that. We like to tattle and get each other in trouble. Not to help them to be godly, but to just enjoy seeing them taken down a notch. Right? Or you feel better because they got in trouble. Got to watch out for that. Don't be the accuser. If there is something to address, if you need to say something, you see a problem. I always like the sandwich method. That's how I learned it in speech class. Right? Where you start with something positive, and then you sandwich in the thing you've got to say that's negative, and then you say something positive again after. Keep it in that kind of tone. Uh, some affirmation at the end, especially, that you're pulling for them. You're on their side, right? 
uh, but you need to say what you say, what, what needs to be said too. Well, the, use the sandwich method there. Don't be the accuser. Be edifying and, and building up. Be, have it be constructive criticism if that's needed. That's number three. Don't be the accuser. Uh, number four, Jesus is our protector from wrongful accusation. Uh, here, Romans 8 is the key passage, and it's just a glorious text, uh, beginning in verse 31. Again, we, we find there uh, Paul saying, if God's for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know God's for us? He gave us his son to die on the cross. If he's going to do that, how is he going to turn against us later? That makes no sense. That's the gist of what Paul's saying. He's given us his son to die for us. How will he not finish the job, give us everything that he plans to give us? He's not going to turn back and condemn and accuse us and reject us. No. So that's the, the beauty of that passage. Nobody's going to bring a charge against God's elect that he's going to listen to because his son's sitting at his right hand interceding for us, having just died for us. So Jesus is our protector from wrongful accusation. You know, this is a powerful story, imagining this, with the accusers walking away one by one, and Jesus standing there with the woman, he showing compassion and grace. That's a powerful picture, but it doesn't bring in, it's only on the human level yet. We haven't even yet considered in that picture the fact that Jesus is the one who will go to the cross and die for those sins. He's the one who will ascend to heaven and sit at God's right hand and plead with the Father for that same forgiveness. That, that, that uh, no condemnation is earned by him at the cross. So Jesus protects us from wrongful accusation. And last, uh, just a brief thought, when you are accused or wrongfully criticized, what if you're uh, in that position where you are, are the one who's accused. Uh, what if you're like the woman in this story? Maybe you've actually sinned. Maybe you've sinned less than they're accusing you of. Maybe you haven't hardly done anything at all like what they're accusing you of. But what do we do in that situation? Well, we, we learn all we can from it. Even if it's malicious, uh, God will use that to refine you. Uh, the woman here, I think, learns a valuable lesson or a valuable lessons given to her at least. So don't focus only on how wrong it is to be accused like this. Uh, find what's valid in the criticism that you can learn from. Learn all you can from it. Don't give in to the fear of man. God is your ultimate judge. Uh, we see David do this in the Psalms all the time. Right? We, half the Psalms are, are, seem a bit foreign to us because it's all about these enemies and accusers that he has. And he's saying, Lord, do you hear what they're saying about me? I haven't done these things. Protect me. David had faced a lot of false accusation in his life. But, well, that's, that's the response to give. Don't give in to the fear of man. Turn to the Lord and, and seek his protection. So the problem isn't first when we, when we think about sin like adultery and sexual sin and accusations and keeping the lines clear and the grace of God. When we try to put all this together... The problem isn't first what the world is doing wrong and how Jesus needs to set it straight with the law. All right? the, the first problem is how do we come to Jesus? Are we trying to control Jesus, trying to keep him in our pigeonholed assumptions like the Pharisees do? 
or do we bow to him as Lord and accept his sentence upon us? When he says to us, sin no more, we need to respond with confession and say, I have sinned, I resolve not to sin more. I agree with you, Lord. I come to you in faith to forgive what I've done in the past, and I walk uh, with you in faith into the future. So uh, that's the call that we have as God's people. Jesus doesn't charge or condemn his people. He gives us compassion, and he defends us from the accusations of others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, a, a difficult passage for us to consider, uh, one uh, charged with much controversy, uh, but also uh, displaying so richly your compassion. And Lord, we, uh, we confess once again that we need to rely upon that con- compassion if we are to have any standing with you at all, if, we, if you will hear us even now as we pray. We need the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you that you have extended it to us. Uh, as we come to your table, we thank you for giving us a place uh, to claim that grace, to proclaim ourselves as your people once again. Lord, keep us from uh, the temptation to accuse others uh, for our own purposes. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for uh, responding poorly to criticism of others. Uh, forgive us, Lord, uh, where we have uh, gratified our own desires uh, physically uh, or where we have uh, forsaken your word. We thank you for your grace that you give to us to atone for these sins. We thank you that you uh, offer us a clean slate to go and to sin no more. Lord, Uh, give us grace as your people uh, to remain walking with you uh, in love, in faith, and in devotion. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him and the Lord said to Satan the Lord rebuke you Satan the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you is this not a brand plucked from the fire now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying take away the filthy garments from him And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Just like in John chapter 8, this table is a place where Jesus replaces accusation with grace. This table is a place where accusation can be especially strong. We know that we are not deserving to receive Christ. We often focus here on worthy partaking. Uh, How how can we be worthy? We know we are not worthy of his love. But we're called to let that conviction of the Spirit drive you to Jesus and not drive you away from him. The Lord takes away your sin and guilt signified by the the dirty clothes that the the priest has on in this passage. 
Jesus puts the, his righteousness on you. He rebukes your accuser. And he stands by you, faithful to his covenant with his people. So God feeds our souls here. Just as the woman was motivated to sin no more as she received forgiveness, so we are called to sin no more as we eat and drink together. We do invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As we eat together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come with your children and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.